Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome. This is Interpreter Radio. In studio, we have John Gee, Mark Johnson, and Martin Tanner. The Interpreter Show is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, the mission of which is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship. We provide accurate information to the public about the Church, we make free to everyone on the internet scholarship on a wide variety of subjects at interpreterfoundation.org. The Interpreter Foundation also defends the church against misunderstandings and criticisms. Nevertheless, the Interpreter Foundation is not owned, controlled by, or affiliated directly with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the material it publishes and what we speak this evening is solely our responsibility. Also, this particular program is sponsored by the Kimber Academy. Kimber Academy is a K through 12 private school, which unlike public schools, keeps God in the classroom. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students toward faith and morality with equality engaging curriculum. Uh, at Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard. In Utah, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah. There are many other locations throughout the United States. If you want to find out more about the Kimber Academy, you can call the director, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158. 801-382-7158 or go to kimberschool.com that is kimberschool.com wonderful place i highly recommend it and for our first hour we are starting this is kind of fun our first uh show for Curriculum, Come Follow Me, 2024. And if you are interested in uh, the Book of Mormon, this is sort of the background edition for the Book of Mormon. This is the Come Follow Me curriculum for January 1st through the 7th, the introductory pages of the Book of Mormon for our first segment. And for our second segment, we're going to talk about some of the wonderful and amazing aspects of the Book of Mormon, and hopefully from some of the points of view that you may not be aware of. And uh, I'm, I'm going to ask John if you would start us off here and talk a little bit about the introductory pages, and then I'll let Mark do the same, and by then maybe we'll have Kevin Christensen with us here, and we'll just move on from there. Well, thank you, Martin. Um, so, the place to start with the Book of Mormon is the title page, and this is was written in the at the end of the Book of Mormon and written by Moroni, and it tells, at least from Moroni's perspective, the purpose of the book, but it seems to be in line with every, all the other uh, editors and authors of the book. So it's an abridgment of the people, of the record of the people of Nephi. It's written by way of commandment, also by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, written and sealed up and hidden unto the Lord, to come forth by the gift and power of God, and then um, sealed up by the hand of, of Moroni. And then also talks about the bridgement of the Book of Ether and says, is to show to the remnant of the house of Israel the great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, and that they may know the covenants of the Lord and they are not cast off forever. 
and also the convincing of the Jews and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations. Now, this uh, title page was found on the, the plates, and they were plates of gold, um, and many of the records are also taken from what they described as plates of brass. Now, these plates of brass come from the old world. Um, one of the things that has been interested me for the last couple of years is that the area that uh, Lehi and Nephi traveled through to get um, to where they sailed to the New World, that area in southern Arabia, they have found a hundred examples of brass plates. And, uh, and if you read these inscriptions, uh, they sound very similar. They talk about being dedicated and laid up to the, to, well, whichever pagan god they're uh, worshiping. They also say that it was done by revelation and, um, and that they were written by way of commandment. And so all these things are very similar to brass plates. The interesting thing is, as far as I've been able to ascertain, uh, the earliest of these came to light about 50 years after the Book of Mormon was published. <laughs> which, and, which makes it a real trick for Joseph Smith to have come by that information any way other than Revelation. Yeah, the, these, these plates take a, a whole range of, um, span the whole range of pre-Islamic Arabia and start about the time of Lehi and Nephi. Now, uh, we can't really date them more accurately than um, usually with the paleography, uh, and we're they're just starting to put together some of the historical uh, times or inscriptions of of that area. So um, maybe down the line we'll be able to pinpoint the date of some of these more accurately. You can't really carbon-14 date uh, bronze or brass. No, yes. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Non-living things it doesn't work too well with. So, um, and they're, so this is an interesting source and, and some interesting parallels to the language, uh, at least in most of these plates. And... Um, and with the, the title page of the Book of Mormon. Another interesting thing about these plates is that a lot of them are concerned with repentance. So they're erecting this plate in part to repent of something that happened, and then they've asked for revelation. They've been told to, um, to write these things down, and, um, on, and they make a brass plate out of it. So um, uh, that's at least something to start out with, Mark. That is pretty cool. One of the things um, we're also going to talk just a little bit about is um, the, just the idea of witnesses, how um, important um, witnesses are in um, the restoration of these, these texts. God is not going to um, just, you know, let us um, guess and, and just, you know, just hang there, you know, without any kind of a you know, witness of uh, the truthfulness of this, he left uh, an entire um, pattern um, of uh, the men and women followed to be witnesses to the, the plates. And I think that is really remarkable. You know, the, a lot of the, the critics of the church have had, um, you know, an easy time supposedly explaining away the existence of plates in their own view, but they've got a problem, and that is the um, existence of witnesses who've left um, testimony, multiple testimonies. And you just, you know, they, they can't, can't deny that. You can't go back and, and undo, undo these testimonies that have, been, that have been given. These testimonies stand as, a, you know, an eternal witness now for, for the, the truthfulness of the existence of the plates, um, for the uh, translation of the Book of Mormon by, you know, the power of God. And you know other other key factors of the the restoration, and you know because of these witnesses, God is able to speak to us 
you know, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, and we know that uh, the Book of Mormon's true because of that. Um, the Book of Mormon itself is also a witness. Um, it's a witness that, you know, God still remembers us. He still remembers, you know, the promises that he made to, you know, um, Nephi and Lehi, Lehi, I guess, and, you know, and his, his seed through Nephi and everyone else who uh, was extended those blessings, um, you know, all the way down through the, the, you know, extinct Nephites and, you know, the later Lamanites and whatever, whatever remnant they have, you know, the Book of Mormon is a witness to them that God has not forgotten about them. You know, witnesses are a, a really key uh, and crucial, important, you know, uh, point to, you know, God's uh, operating. You know, he, he works through witnesses. He provides those, you know, and he doesn't, you know, leave us, uh, leave us on our own to, to guess whether or not, you know, we're, we're believing in something that's, you know, just something of a, as a figment of our imagination. So I'm, I'm really impressed by that. Thank you. Great, great comments. Um, Kevin. You're with us. Can you hear? Yes. Yes, I can hear. (laughs) Thank you so much. Any comments about uh, the introductory material here and particularly about the plates as we've been talking about for just a minute or two? Kevin Christensen is joining us. I like like the information that John was providing from it. Quite a bit of that was new to me. One of the things to say about plates in Jerusalem is that it turns out that some of the oldest... uh, biblical texts in existence were on two silver scrolls that date to Jerusalem 600 BC that quote from Numbers, the priestly blessing. And uh, so that not only has writing on on metal from the books of Moses, but it turns out that, that the theme of that priestly blessing is to you know, be able to, <laughs> to go to the temple and it says, may the Lord's uh, face shine upon you. And of course that happens in the Book of Mormon in a number of places that, you know, that's uh, when, when Christ comes, that's one of the things that happens. So there's, it's not just that you have writing on metal plates, but the themes uh, are directly relevant to the you know the most important moments in the Book of Mormon. So it's this kind of thing where there's a convergence of things. And uh, when when I read the the accounts um, that were you know that come from the day from the people that were there, one of the things that struck me is, is there's this it's not just one person telling a story. It's lots of different people telling a story. And it's like everybody knew that Joseph had the plates. You know, they, they were, you know, even, his, even his neighbors who were supposedly didn't believe him were searching his house and, <laughs> and getting, a, you know, like a, a, somebody who had supposedly, you know, another money digger from another town to try and locate them. So they, they knew that they had them, and there were, there's enough different witnesses different kinds of witnesses that, that tell things now ranging from um, uh, Emma Smith talking about that you know she she handled them she, you know she she moved them around to a, wrapped up in a in a pillowcase basically and fluttered the, the edges of the of the leaves and felt them like you know, <laughs> and described that so there's something very tactical and physical and that this this definite presence that's there you know to explain somehow and of course it's easy for people to you know, to say, well, they were obviously deluded or conspiracy or something, but it, it just, those, the stories that try to explain it away, I think, are have a far harder time than those that just accept the, you know, that there was this real presence there, and these people dealt with it every day. I think Bushman wrote an essay a few years ago where he talked about that the, that the <clears throat> critics of the church are far more likely to suppress this kind of information. You know, they, and there's the tendency to, well, the Mormons would suppress the, you know, the, the facts to try and come up with this story. But it's, it turns out to be the, the critics that just don't want to talk about all of these witnesses and all of this, you know, this sense that they're the very tactfully, you know, aware that there was something real there. They were seeing it and feeling it. And it was, had a profound effect on their lives that changed the course of their lives, not just for, you know, this you know, few years when the plates were in Joseph's possession, but for the rest of their lives and to their deaths. I think it was a few years ago, Elder Holland read uh, the account of Joseph, Joseph and Hiram reading from the Book of Mormon in Liberty Jail. You know, that it was something that they, that had come into their lives you know, and turned, changed the course, and there at the end of it, it was something that they turned to for comfort. So I think the Book of Mormon is something that 
impresses me more and more the older I get, and that the, the case for the Book of Mormon is magnitudes better than when I was a kid. And if it had been, if it had just been some sort of uh, forgery, I, given all of the attention that's been given, the case ought to be getting worse. But it's getting better. And uh, Alma talks about, uh, Alma 32 talks about cause to believe versus, you know, absolute knowing. And it's like we, we don't have enough to be able to force people. But I think what we have is inviting. And if we give it a chance, if we plant the seed and nurture it and look at it and really examine it and test it ourselves, the cause to believe will expand and it will grow and it'll start to put out shoots and roots and leaves and branches and fruit that you can taste in your life. And there's that, that process of going through and seeing that the case gets better and better and better and that the questions that come up, yeah, but the questions that are uh, coming up now are, uh, aren't really an improvement on anything that used to be the, you know, the faith boogeyman when I was growing up. But the case for the Book of Mormon has gotten remarkably better. Uh, I, I just find it stunning that the, the amount of very well-trained people looking at the book and the story and the history from different perspectives and finding, uh, I think, very impressive cause to believe that this that this thing was real, that this these plates were real, that they that something miraculous and spiritual came into the lives of Joseph Smith and his family and his neighbors and, and those who were touched even just by the book. You know, when Samuel Smith went out with you know, with a knapsack and some books of Mormon, and to think about the impact of the one book he was able to give away, that it went from hand to hand to hand and touched you know, Brigham Young and several other people. Uh, it's just a remarkable story and something that still staggers me whenever I think about it. Thank you. Great, great comments. Um, you were talking about the Ketif Hinnom uh, amulets that were the small little silver silver um, writings from the Old Testament. I, those are a marvelous source. Thanks for bringing those up. One of the ones, one of the sources that's often brought up for Latter-day Saints is uh, King Darius plates that date to about 550, maybe 486 BC, so slightly after Lehi left. Um, but the fascinating thing to me about those is that they are golden and silver plates and they're also found in a stone box which is an additional point uh you know critics critics um and those also found 1938 in modern day iran so that's well after joseph smith's era and well they, even in our day um in the 1980s they found a a bronze or brass, depending on which term you want to use, plate uh, at Burgos Kui in Turkey. And this is Hittite, and uh, it's a record of covenant. And it, so it dates to around the time of Moses. This, this is the Pergi, Italy, the 1700 B.C. No, this, no is, this is, this is Burgos Kui. Okay. Uh, the tablet they found there. It's about the size okay. of a sheet of paper and about a centimeter thick and 340-some-odd lines of Hittite. Oh, fascinating. Really tiny engravings on this. Uh, and then they also found, uh, well, Ramses II left a record of a treaty, a covenant he made with the Hittites that was sent to him on gold and silver plates. The... Now, all the, the record that we have on it are clay plate. We've got the Hittite version of it is on clay tablets that was found at Burgos Clay. And then the Ramses engraved the Egyptian version on the wall of his temple. We don't actually have those plates, but they mentioned that they were plates. And, of course, this wasn't deciphered until long after Joseph Smith. Long after Joseph Smith. That's cool. And then... Occasionally, critics will say, well, that's the old world. Give us some new world examples. We can do that. The Peabody Museum at Harvard has some um, Mayan golden plates that were discovered in 1899 in the Chichen Itza 
area on the Yucatan Peninsula that date to about uh, 720 A.D. So that's that's a, a little bit later than the Book of Mormon narrative period, but it shows that that kind of thing was available in the general area in the New World, and, and so it, this is something that that was on both continents. Yeah. So the the plates themselves are are interesting. Um, as a as a record from plates and that was what you would do to preserve um, particularly covenant material sure. uh, and it it's now much better attested for uh, the time period of of Lehi they've also found um, uh, from a little bit before then lead uh, well lead plates and tablets and records um, both in Babylon and um, I can't remember right now the Luvian site that has them but those are also uh, attested there. One of the things that strikes me as interesting about that at least with the uh, um, ones that were found in the Yucatan um, were at least according to the Book of Mormon um, the Nephites pretty much had um, the monopoly on the technology of of writing and, and playmaking, at least the way I, I read the text. And, um, you know, the, the fact that we haven't really found any, any random stray bits of, of technology, you know, of, of these plates, you know, with, with Lehi's or anyone's name on them, you know, just kind of shows that they, they kept them all sacred. And Well, there's also a little bit of um, archaeological bias here because well, if you're writing it on on metal the Spaniards took all the metal mm -hmm. melted it down and put it into coins and shipped it off to Spain so it's in a different form they destroyed whatever uh, form that metal may have been in so we don't know of any metal plates that would have been available to them would have been destroyed by them so we We've got a little bit of a, a bind there archaeologically. We just, because if it was around, it would have been repurposed. Yeah. Yep. We found out a way to unroll the copper scroll. We haven't found out a way to unrefine the gold coins that <laughs> probably, anyway. You can't yeah. untoast the toast. That's right. what you're saying there. Yeah. So there, when we look at some of these artifacts, we have to realize some of the um, some of the things that caused them to be destroyed. Well, it, it's fascinating that over time that this whole idea of writing on metal plates that were found in a stone box was ridiculed for a long, long time. Not anymore. I mean, there are claims about whether they're true enough, but there are so many examples. You've given us some, mm -hmm. some brand, brand new ones, uh, John, but the Darius plates, the... Chichen Itza won some, I mean, they're the Peabody Museum. There are just a lot of examples, and yeah. people don't bring that one up anymore because it's not a good critic argument anymore. Uh, yeah, there, um, there are a couple of other things that we, that get glossed over, and I want to pick up one of the things in the testimony of the three witnesses and just take you through a thought experiment to see why this may have been done this way. So when you look at the testimony of the three witnesses, they say that um, we, this is we, we know that it has been, they have been translated by the gift and power of God for his voice hath declared it unto us. Wherefore, we know of a surety that the work is true. So the, the translation, we often think, well, why didn't Joseph Smith translate it the normal way that people do? Why do it through the gift and power of God? And why take the plates back? Well, if we look at other archaeological discoveries, this is what we would expect to have happened. So if Joseph Smith 
takes out the, the metal plates, uh, his first thought and was that he could help out his family and he could sell them. Well, yeah, except the Lord intervened with that. He didn't want that to happen, and that's a good thing because most archaeological discoveries, when they discover it, it tends to get split up. And some of them get destroyed, and some of them uh, go to different places. And so you'd get, uh, you would have these, in order to reassemble it, you'd have to piece it together from various from all over the place. As we see with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Nakamadi, um, you can, or even the, or the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> so, and then, if you got a translation, then every generation would want to redo it and criticize the previous generation's scholarship, and we would be haggling forever about what this word meant or that word meant and different proposals. And you'd never really get a firm fixed translation. It wouldn't go, it would be one of those things that only scholars looked at. Um, I mean, you can buy copies of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, but how many people actually read them? And of those who read them, how many of them get anything out of it? Uh, it's not going to change somebody's life the way the Book of Mormon is. So if it had come the normal route, uh, we still wouldn't have a definitive translation at this date, um, even if we could read them. And, and there are lots of examples of how scripts change over time. People think that since I'm an Egyptologist, then I might be able to read the gold plates. Well, I might be able to read the plates of Nephi because that's about the time of, you know, when that's closest to the Egyptian that I'm used to seeing. But I probably wouldn't have any clue how to read Mormon and Moroni's script um, because I Egypt had a period of civil war in the split between the north and south and for about 200 years and the scripts at the end of that time are mutually unintelligible. Egyptologists who have been trained in one can't read the other. You have to have been trained in both in order to be able to read them. And so this is not an easy sorts of, of thing. And, and when we look at the South Arabian script, uh, their script uh, they had a basically a print form and a cursive form. And towards the beginning, you can understand where both of them come from, but a thousand years later, they're not mutually intelligible. And we, we see in English how much the Bible has changed from 1611 to today. Most people, if they opened a 1611 photo reproduction, couldn't read it. Just well, just, that's just mainly the, the orthography. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. you, how you're used to, used to have seeing the words spelled or so forth. The, the words themselves, if you put them in a different spelling, we don't have a problem with. And if you're, you're somewhat linguistically creative or you had a little training, it's not a, the spellings aren't a, a terrible problem. That some uh, of the word meaning has changed. Some of the word meanings have changed, yes. So um, conversation then meant conduct, and now it just means talking. <laughs> and uh, you add another 600 years onto that, and we see what could well, happen uh, over time. Well, a thousand years ago, so the yeah. Book of Mormon covers a thousand-year period. A thousand years ago, English is basically Beowulf. That's right. And if you're not trained in that, you can't read it. You know, with my, my kids coming home from school and they're, you know, trying to drop these cool new Gen Z words that are, that are out there. Um, my, my boy told me that I had Riz the other day, which apparently is... Charisma. Uh, charisma, uh -huh. You know, I, I think that it's, it's pretty easy to see that uh, things can go off the, off the rails pretty quick as far as the, the way things used to go. So, Well, but the, there's also a... I'm, 
I wish I could prove this, but writing, I think, puts a drag on language development. And writing and literacy. I think oral cultures change faster than, as I say, I can't really prove it because the problem is that the only way you know about stuff from that far back is writing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which under the hypothesis puts a drag on the change. Maybe in another thousand years we could <laughs> go back to our old sure. CDs and find that out. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. so... Um, also, I think on the on the testimony that it's important to bring up, you've got two different types of witnesses. You've got the three witnesses. They get to see an angel. They get to hear the voice of God. Um, they get to see the plates. Uh, it doesn't say that they handle them. Uh, and then you get the eight witnesses. And, Okay, this is oversimplifying it a, a bit, but it's basically Joseph Smith takes them out into the backyard and shows them to them. They don't get the voice of God, so they don't talk. They say, well, we handled it with our hands. We saw the engravings, engravings thereon, all of which has the appearance of ancient work. So they're, they're testifying of what they saw with their—they didn't see a vision. They didn't hear the voice of God, uh, and so they describe what they do see. And it's interesting to look at the number of times where they talk about seeing and knowing in these two testimonies. And I suppose also since this is interpreter radio, we shouldn't go past without saying, you really want to look at this. We've got, they've got a docudrama, docu, docudrama and a, uh, and then a, a, then they have the other the movie versions, so you can see witnesses, yeah. or uh, those are available. And um, so, if you're really interested in this, go dig into it. And they are very high quality. Kevin, anything else? Yeah. Then besides the the three and the eight, then more and more attention has been paying, paid attention to the informal witnesses. You know, the people who are just around, you know, like like Emma, who. Who saw, you know, didn't see the plates, and she, but she hefted them and handled them and moved them from place to place during this period of translation. And uh, there's uh, Mary Whitmer, who was another, uh, who had a vision of the place. And also, I, I think somebody said that he saw through a window, he saw a corner, you know, the corner of the plates. There, there are just things like that where just, there's, there's a, when I read those, you know, accounts of the, the you know, that early period, you just get the sense that everybody knew that they were there, that they were solid and that they were real. And even, you know, the ones that were, you know, wanting their, their share of the money to get loot, you know, they, they felt like they were entitled, which is, you know, the motivation for the people searching the house. But they knew we had something. They knew something was going on. There's talks about, you know, people having seen the, the box that used to be on the, you know, Camorra, that there's just this something, you know, like Bushman's book, he talks about it as a, as like it's made a splash and you can see the ripples. You know, we don't see the plates, but we can see the impact that it had on the lives of these people that it, and that the ripples are continuing and it's, you know, that they're continuing in my life, that there's something that happened there that's, you know, that I still find fascinating and it gets more and more so the closer I look. Uh, there's this, also the sense when, the, just one more thing, when I was, no, go uh, ahead. there was a, a, um, Betsy Scrolls ex- exhibition that went through uh, Topeka, Kansas, many years ago, and I was, you know, we were asked to go be ushers there, and I was standing by a replica of the gold plates there, you know, our, you know, our gold plates. But the one thing that struck me when I looked at it was, is that it wouldn't fool anybody for a minute. You know, it was the the right size, but it wasn't beautiful workmanship. You know, and, the, and there's in the statement of the eight witnesses that as many the as many of the leaves that Joseph Smith translated, we'd examined with our hands. And I looked at this replica, and they'd only done a page or two at the top, and then the rest of it they left blank because it would have been too expensive. So that this kind of effort to create something beautiful and convincing, (laughs) that you would show these people and have it change their lives, whereas, you know, when I looked at that, the replica, I thought, yeah, it kind of gives you the idea of it. But it's a replica. It's just there's there's no no sense of the antiquity or the beauty or that you know even the the kind of effort 
that you could see on the engravings, you know, it, it was it was just not there. But Joseph Smith had something that had that kind of impact on people, and that even on himself. Uh, I think Carol Givens talked about Joseph Smith's some of the descriptions were just an admiration of the workmanship and the beauty of the things. So it's all this impressive feel, the solidity to it all that I find really impressive. And if somebody today with the technology that we have couldn't do something that looked <laughs> that looked adequate and convincing, how would somebody from Joseph Smith's era have been able to do that? It's absolutely impossible, which which goes to the whole issue of the alternative ideas that some of the critics have come up with, you know, the the uh, Solomon Spaulding theory or view of the Hebrews or Oliver Cowdery had some secret manuscript or what, they're all so absurd and impossible that it, it they're, they're almost laughable. And the idea of where could he have come up with plates is, is even is even more difficult to explain. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned, Kevin, that the, the secondary witnesses, I've always been impressed with Martin Harris as, as a, a secondary witness, where he says he hefted the plates, and he knew from the heft they had to either be gold or lead, and that Joseph Smith couldn't borrow enough money to buy that much lead. <laughs> <laughs> and and so and and Martin, you brought it, bring up the alternative examples. I the one that just floored me that came out um, a few few years back, uh, Ann Taves, arguing. Well, uh, Joseph Smith wasn't deluded, and he wasn't a deceiver, but there weren't any plates, and that's logically incoherent. That's right. That makes no sense. <laughs> it's um, because. If there aren't plates, he said there were plates. So he was either deceiving somebody or he was delusional. And she just excluded both of those, but she won't allow for the possibility of plates either. And and that's just logically incoherent. Yeah. And the, the tough part about it is that if you know if we're not going to believe in angels or you know plates, then you know by all purposes, the Book of Mormon shouldn't exist. Especially if you consider there was, I think there, the latest estimate is 57 days to translate it. Mm-hmm. Um, to produce a 500-page, 500 531-page book in 57 days. If anybody's tried to write that sort of stuff, and, and you only get one draft. That's right. I talked to Dan Peterson about when he put together his Abraham Divided book, which is signif- which is a great work, but significantly shorter than the mm-hmm. Book of Mormon. And he was saying, you know, I had a really tough time with that 10 pages. I had, a, I had done all the research for decades, and, and I had this computer, and I had word processing, and I had spell check, and I had, you know, and they had none of this. It, it's just utterly and, impossible. And, and to... To be able to spit it out at that rate and to have all these little coherent things. So I, I've noticed that recently there have been a, a resurgence in theories based on the, the, the Book of Mormon as we have it when Joseph Smith translated it. He, was, went through, he translated 116 pages, picked up where he left off in... And basically, in Mosiah, runs through the end and then comes, picks up the small plates. And the resurgence in arguments that there is the there are these significant things that you can uh, that you can try to track as chronological development uh, along the the line at the if you read it in that order. But there are all these threads that connect that work if it's historical. But how does something that gets mentioned once in Mosiah, referring back to something, that won't be translated until another uh, 500 pages later, how how does he remember to put in those threads if he's 
developing and changing the narrative as he's going along. It just doesn't work. Uh, and so there are lots of, even, even things that it's called plates of brass. In Joseph Smith's day, they're calling that bronze. Yeah. And that's, and Joseph Smith is translating it all into early modern English. It's not his English. It's not English of anybody around him. It's English of uh, the 1500s. And, uh, you know, so 300 years earlier, and he's translating it into really well into that form of language. It's just a language that he doesn't speak. He includes all of this. Uh, all of these um, things that I call verbal punctuation, um, little words to divide up sentences and paragraphs and structure the narrative, um, which he doesn't use himself. You don't find them used or at least used that way in his writings. It's, uh, it's an amazing production, and you dictate it all, and you've got one draft to get it right. Yeah. It's absolutely remarkable. It is Mark. really one of the things that uh, John wrote a bunch of years ago. Um, talked about how um, the Book of Mormon is impressive because of the style it was not written in. Um, and you talked about you kind of put some of the the Book of Mormon um, dialogue in um, a style like um, like a Pride and Prejudice or oh well, there, it's just it's not. Not a product of Joseph's time. No, not a product of Joseph's time. Even the, the people that he talks about, the ancient inhabitants, that's not the way anybody was talking about it in his day. You look at all the things where people say, yeah, see, this was like View of the Hebrews or uh, Manuscript Found or the Book of Pukey, and you can see exactly what the people of Joseph Smith's day thought. Where are the birch bark canoes? Where are the... Uh, the feather headdresses, uh, all of the stuff that was that fit jo the the Native Americans that Joseph Smith and those of his day knew, and uh, and some of them the contemporaries even talk about it. It's like uh, when they Stevens and Catherwood found these Mayan cities. Then the church members said, well, this is a relief because we didn't know of any cities. Nobody knew about cities <laughs> before. And they yeah, talk, the Book of Mormon talks about cities. All of this stuff, and, and the Book of Mormon fits better archaeologically now than it did when I was born. You could probably make the same argument for the Book of Abraham. I'm not trying to get off topic or anything, but yeah. there are so many things in the Book of Abraham that really aren't reflective of that early age of Egyptology, like sphinxes or mummies or pyramids or, you know, all that stuff is just absent in the Book of Abraham. Yeah, there's, it's, it's not the sort of book that everybody says, well, anybody would have written this in Smith's day. No, we have the, those sorts of attempts, and it doesn't read like the Book of Mormon. So in our last 10 minutes, gentlemen, uh, let me in invite each one of you to talk about the idea of how the Book of Mormon is something that you can be a witness for, how you can help other people by using your own witness for the Book of Mormon, and perhaps um, how the content of the Book of Mormon itself has, has affected and changed your life. In other words... In what way would you personally be a witness? Can I go first? <clears throat> One okay. of the things that um, has really struck me in my reading of the Book of Mormon, especially Nephi's um, writings, is how he has hinged um, the accuracy of his writings to um, the legitimacy of Christ. How he says that if you you know find that my writings are true, therefore you'll know that Jesus is the Christ. You'll know that you know he's the the promised Messiah who's going to come. Um, you know, and Nephi, he sets his whole argument for Christ based, you know, you know, stand or fall based on, you know, his, his records being true and his experiences, you know, being correct. Um, and in the introduction of the Book of Mormon, um, the, the church is kind of following the same, 
the same approach, he says, or they, it writes, it says here, uh, those who gain a divine, this divine witness from the Holy Ghost will also come to know by that same power that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, uh, that Joseph Smith is his revelator and prophet in these last days, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Lord's kingdom once again on earth. Um, you know, by, by reading the Book of Mormon and knowing it's true, um, you know, it, it points us back to Christ, and I think that we can witness um, of Christ by taking the Book of Mormon seriously. You know, that'd be my recommendation. Thank you. Kevin. It has this capacity to change lives in interesting ways, and um, like, for example, in uh, one of the first things I published, and this was a comparison between near-death experience research and the Book of Mormon, and I, I realized that you know, Alma's conversion happened by into death. Is that like these near-death accounts? And it turns out, yes, it was. Uh, and Paul, so he showed all the after-effects. Then I go a little bit further, and I start uh, looking at addiction recovery, and it turns out that the 12 steps of addiction recovery are in the Book of Mormon. And the uh, interesting, and it, the way that... Uh, uh, Hebrew writing likes to work is, is with you know comparison and contrast. They'll, they'll tell similar stories and there'll be a difference. And in, in that difference, you can see it'll illuminate differences in character. And like so, uh, Alma sees the angel and he's converted. So you think, oh well, if only I could see an angel, I'd be converted. But there's also the story of Laman and Lemuel seeing an angel and not being converted. And then it goes back to this thing that works in addiction recovery. It's the step four they call the searching and fearless moral inventory, where Take a close look at your life, all the things you've done and how it's hurt other people and how, just how it's affected your decisions. And part of that is deconstructing a grievance story, they'll say. So you look at Alma, the first thing he does after seeing the angel is he looks at his own sins. Zeezrom, when he's talking to Amalek uh, and, and Alma, he doesn't see an angel, but he looks at his own sins. After Laman and Lemuel see the angel, they start talking about their grievances, their resentments. Laban is a mighty man. He can slay 50, yet he can kill 50. Why not us? And it's all, for them, it's all grievance and self-justification. So it's not the angel. It's the life review that changes people. And this is this kind of detail, to me, that, the, that brings out that there is this profound insight in the book that is far beyond Joseph Smith's capability or anyone's capability at that time. And that's why it, it changed his life, and it changed his John, um, you look at the Book of Mormon, and it's not one of the most impressive things about it is that it's although it's it's one of your best guides to ancient history. You look at the processes that happen in there, and you can see it working out if you're looking in the Romans or you're looking in the Hittites or uh, ancient Israel, ancient Assyria, you can see some of the same processes that are described historically. But it's not satisfied with just telling a story about the past. It specifically addresses the reader and brings it in. If you want to, it says, if you want to see a God of miracles, you want to live in that, come live in that, to get your own witness for the Book of Mormon. It describes somebody going through that process um, almost a dozen times, but then ends and says, uh, you can do it yourself, and you can get your own witnesses. You don't have to take our word for it. You can, you can live in a world where God works miracles, and all you have to do is humble yourself and ask, and you can get your own answer. And that's um, that's where, I mean, as scholars, we may have that witness. We don't usually talk about it, but that basis is available to all the readers of it. And most books don't invite you, certainly ones that are trying to be fake or telefantasy world, don't invite you to pray about it and find out it's real. One of the things that I have always remembered um, 
was one of the earliest, and, and this kind of dates me, but one of the early, early, it was, was one of the very first uh, farms banquets. And I remember that um, then Elder Iring, who, who of course was not in the First Presidency at the time, came, came and spoke and said words to the effect of, you Latter-day Saint scholars are doing some wonderful things with the Book of Mormon, not that this kind of scholarship where you show uh, historical context and things gives somebody a testimony, but what it does do is give someone a context in which their testimony can flourish. And it, it, it would be a little bit like the difference between running into somebody who says, I can't believe in Jesus because he was not a real person. And you can just come up with almost insurmountable evidence that, yeah, he, he was a real guy. And, and so you have context for this amazing New Testament narrative and, and story. And it's the same way with the Book of Mormon. You, you have this context that we have for the Book of Mormon that now makes it incredibly intellectually supportable to believe in the Book of Mormon, and then you can look at its real content and the faith-promoting stories that it has in there are just remarkable. I, I, the first few times I ever read the Book of Mormon, it just had an enormous impact on me, and, and I wasn't reading about, uh, you know, for historicity or earmarks of this or that. I was just reading it for the content, and I had not run into critics at that point in, in time, and it was just a, a joyous experience. The content is just sublime and wonderful. Some of the most, you know, oh, that I were an angel. Uh, I will go and do the things that the Lord hath commanded. Why? Because he's always going to prepare a way. I, you know, there are, there are some of the most amazing scriptural statements in there of truth that, that can be found anywhere. Yep. We have two minutes. Uh, I want to tell our listeners how grateful we are and how excited we are from the Interpreter Foundation to talk about the Book of Mormon this year. And also mention that during our next hour, the, the four of us will, will be back. John Gee, Kevin Christensen by phone, Mark Johnson, and I'm Martin Tanner. We're going to talk some more about some of the details that we have about the Book of Mormon that might be of interest to you as, as you uh, wend your way through the Book of Mormon study. And maybe we'll also get some insights from our scholars here by, by phone and in studio about ways that you might want to tackle that approach. Uh, and with that, we will be back on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. This is Interpreter Radio.